0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're joining with us here at Bethany as we start a brand new series called Gospel Incomplete. And here's kind of the big idea of the series right up front before we jump into anything else. That what I wanna do for the next five weeks is really to explore what is the gospel? What is it all about? And especially, what does it change in our lives? And what can it also change in the lives of those around us? Because here's what we believe here at Bethany. We believe that Christians are actually called to join Jesus in changing the world. That we're actually called to join Jesus in making the world a better place. That we have a purpose, a mission, and a vision to actually not only be changed by Jesus, Personally, but then to join Jesus in changing lives around us. This is our calling, this is our mission, and this is our vision here. But to be able to do that well, to be able to do that, if we can put it this way, even faithfully, we need to understand what the gospel truly is. I think that Christians might often use that term gospel, but really not quite understand what it actually means. So for example, someone might say like, I go to a gospel-believing church, or this pastor preaches the gospel, or so-and-so accepted the gospel. But if I ask someone to actually define what is the gospel, I think many people would be fuzzy at best. Because if, if you think the gospel is primarily about where you go uh, in the afterlife, if you think the gospel primarily about Jesus dying for your sins or salvation or something like that, I want to share with you that it isn't, and it's actually bigger and better than that. Okay? That the gospel is actually bigger and better than that. Matthew Bates, a scholar who will be using a lot in this series, he writes this, he says the contemporary church's insufficient grasp of the gospel framework as the Bible presents it means that a basic presentation will offer fresh insights for most. He goes on to say this, and those who think that they know the gospel best are often frequently the most surprised by its true shape, content, boundaries, and purpose. I think that's true. So that's what I want to do over this series, is really to introduce you what the gospel is, what it means, and what it changes. And I think that this will matter for all of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you're skeptical of church or not, whether you're new to faith or not. Because if, if you not only understand the gospel, but experience it, this is what will happen in your life. You'll experience life deeper, better, fuller, and even forever, okay? That you'll experience life deeper, better, fuller, and even forever. That's the promise of Jesus, that if you encounter the gospel and you actually start to live into it, that you will experience life fully. And isn't, isn't that what we really truly want? Don't we want to experience life fully as it was meant to be? Do we want to actually just kind of you know drift through life or to really fully experience it as we were meant to? That's what the gospel will invite us into. And so today, I want to start this series. But today is going to be a little bit different than a normal Andrew Sunday. Okay? Now, a normal Andrew kind of Sunday and sermon is where we take one passage, and generally I dive pretty deep into it. There might be a Greek word or a Hebrew word we learn. There's probably some Andrew stories kind of thrown in there. And then at the end, there's always a challenge for how does this you know, practically affect us. Today, though, I wanted to do something a little bit different, that rather than diving deeply into a passage and then kind of like explaining it, instead I want to do something a bit different and to actually dive deeply into our world and describe it, that what I want to do today is I want to really describe our world that you're living in and that I'm living in, because if we're going to understand the good news and the gospel, we also need to understand how it's bad news what we are currently experiencing and living in and living through. So today will be a little bit different, and I want to start with a definition of the word gospel, and then we're going to move into a really deep or thick description of the world that we live in. So first, a definition of the word gospel, because this might be, you know, a new term to you or a new word to you, in case you're unfamiliar with it. Here's how Merriam-Webster actually defines the word gospel, okay? They say this, that the meaning of gospel is the message concerning Christ, the kingdom of God, and salvation. And that's, That's an okay definition. That's what's called like a lexical definition of the word. It tells us what the word gospel means in English. It tells us how people use it, but it doesn't really tell us what the word gospel means like theologically or biblically or scripturally. And so instead I wanna give you today the most clear definition of what the gospel is according to the scriptures, okay? And the most clear definition that I can come up with is this. that If you wanna understand what the gospel is, this is what it is, okay? That Jesus is king. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of really um, understanding what the gospel is, that Jesus is king, or a different way to put it, that Jesus is Lord. This is the heart and the center of what the gospel is. Now. Of course, there is much more that we could say about the gospel. There's a lot more that we could expand upon it. But if you want to know what the gospel is in its simplest, clearest, most concise form, it is just simply this, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, that he is in charge, that he is the ruler, all of that. That's the main idea of the gospel. And if... If you were to read through the New Testament, you will see that this is really one of the major kind of through lines of the entire New Testament. That really, people just keep coming back to recognizing the fact that Jesus is Lord. It's almost so commonplace that we don't even notice it. I'll give you a few examples of how frequently it comes up in the New Testament. In Romans 10, verse nine, we read this. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, because that's the center of the gospel. If you declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or Peter three, uh, fifteen says this, and said you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Or we read this in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse six. We read this, but for, the, but for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is only one Lord, like one king. That's another way to kind of put it. One Lord, one king, one ruler, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live or Revelation 19, verse 16, we read this, and on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of kings and Lord of lords. But this idea that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord is the center of the gospel. In fact, even Jesus speaks about the importance of this. He puts it this way in Luke 9, 23. He says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Follow me and I'll show you how. This is him talking about him really being Lord, him being king, him being the one that we follow. So this is what I'd like to suggest to you is the center of the gospel. Now, of course, it can be expanded, and we will be doing that throughout this actual series. And if we were to give a more kind of fuller description of the gospel, here's how I would put it in its most full form. Uh, Here's how I would describe it, okay? That the gospel is this, that Jesus is the king who pre-existed with the Father, took on human flesh, fulfilling God's promises to David, died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, was buried, was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, appeared to many, and is seated at the right hand of God as Lord and will come again as judge. This is kind of like the gospel expanded, right? The gospel really short is that Jesus is king. This is the gospel expanded. And over the next kind of, you know, five weeks, we're actually going to explore each one of those statements that I just read. And if any of those statements sound familiar, they probably should, because they're really from the Apostle Paul and the creeds, so they're very familiar to many Christians. So for the next few weeks, we're going to expand this idea that Jesus is king by exploring how Jesus pre-existed with the Father and became human, and then we're going to explore how he died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, how he was buried, raised, and on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, was raised and appeared to many, and then lastly we'll come and take a look at how Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and Lord and will come again as judge. This is what we're going to be exploring once a week. But for today, as I said, as a little bit of a different Andrew Sunday, I want to give you a clear definition of the gospel. It's that Jesus is king. And then I want to give to you a really kind of thick description of our world. Because if we're going to understand how Jesus is king is good news, we also have to understand how we are currently trapped in the world, trapped in a kingdom, trapped in a culture that is kind of bad news. So I want to explain to you the world that we live in now. Whether you realize this or not, we all live under a kingdom of sorts right here and right now. That whether you realize this or you're able to name this or not, we're actually all being influenced, shaped, and formed by powers in our world. We might not see them, we might not be aware of them, we might not be able to name them, but this is true. That right now, you and I, we're all actually living in a kingdom, empire, system of sorts, okay? And what I would like to suggest to you is that there are three kind of interlocking systems, powers, or maybe even better put, rulers, that right now are influencing, they are directing and even shaping your life. And that they are oppressive, they are repressive and damaging, but that often they go unnoticed. They're kind of like the powers that are behind the thing, the thing behind the thing. And so what I want to do is I want to name them, and then I want to explore them and see if they don't describe some of the situations in your life or some of what you are experiencing or some of what you see other people experiencing. I think there are three kind of powers that direct the majority of our lives, and the way I would name them is this. There is scarcity, speed, and self-improvement, okay? Scarcity, speed, and self-improvement. I want to explain what I mean by these terms and then see if they don't describe the world that you are currently kind of living in. And so first, I wanna explain what I mean by scarcity. That scarcity is the belief that there simply isn't enough to go around, okay? That's what scarcity means. That there simply isn't enough to go around. And I think scarcity really drives so much of our lives and drives so much of our world. It's the idea that really everything is a zero-sum game. That if somebody else is winning, that means that you are losing. It means that we need to constantly be kind of like grasping and seeking to control and get what we deserve or what we think is ours. This is a power, a ruler, a reality that is shaping and influencing our lives. So scarcity is a thing that drives so much of our lives. This is why virtually everybody in this room often feels that at the end of the day, they just don't have enough. Like enough time, enough money, enough power, enough whatever. That scarcity is the thing that drives our lives and the reason that so many of us, so many of us don't feel satisfied with our lives because of scarcity. I'll give you an example of this. I'll give you an example of this. Let me ask you one question. How much money... How much money would you need to feel like secure, safe, happy, content? How much money would you need to feel satisfied? When you think about that for a second. How much money would you need satisfied? And I bet you I know the answer for you, okay? (laughs) And the answer is more than you currently have, correct? Right? That's how much money you would need to feel satisfied, more than you currently have. That's the god of scarcity driving our lives, that no matter how much we have, we never feel like it's enough, that we just need more and more and more. This is why so many of us are just driven to get more and more and more, yet always feel unhappy or not content or not satisfied. That what I'd like to suggest to you is that one of the gods that is currently kind of ruling our lives, whether we name it this way or realize it this way or not, is the god of scarcity, is the ruler of scarcity that teaches us that we just don't have enough and we need more and more and more. So the first power or system that I think we live under is the system or power of scarcity. The second one that I'd like to describe to you is actually the one that I called speed or it's better put as acceleration. That the modern world is characterized by what is called acceleration, simply meaning that things are going faster and faster and faster. You likely feel this in your own life, that things just keep going faster and faster and faster, meaning that no matter how hard you work, you might feel like you just don't have enough time, that no matter how you balance your day, it just feels like things are falling through the crack. It just feels like you can't quite keep up. This is a very modern problem, and it's currently driving so much of our lives that we just feel like we're always kind of falling behind, needing to do more and more and more and more. Let me give you a few examples to see if this might not resonate or describe some of what you're experiencing. How many of you, if you're honest, would say that life feels faster today than it did like 10, 15, or 25 years ago? How many of you also, if you're honest, would say, you know, when you come to the end of the week, you always feel like there is more you should have done, more you could have done, that you aren't quite doing all that is needed or necessary? Or how many of you just feel this kind of constant pressure to do more, that you might be kind of falling behind? Or to give you like maybe another kind of example, how many of you feel that you might need a vacation from your vacation? And here's what I mean by that, that if perhaps you're lucky enough to get some time off over the summer, sometimes what ends up happening is we are already exhausted before the fall has even hit, right? Like we go to a vacation, but we don't feel rested. We actually feel like we need to do more and more or more. Or one last example for us, okay? One last example for us, I think is really quite, I don't know, common and relevant to all of our lives. When we ask somebody, how was their week? What is the number one response people give? It's busy, isn't it? We ask, how was your week? And they're like, oh, it was really busy why is that the number one response we all give have you ever thought about that why is that our go-to response why do we say like well you know it's just been a really busy season except that busy season never ends why isn't when we ask somebody how was your week the answer isn't well it's really you know full of content and meaningful moments we never say that and so we say it's busy it's busy it's busy because it always is and things just keep going faster and faster and faster what i would like to suggest to you is that the thing behind the thing is actually this ruler, this power, this system, this culture of speed and acceleration, and that it is driving our lives, that we feel the need to do more and more and more and more. And I'm sorry that this might offend you or be controversial or whatever. If you think, if you think that technology is going to help us, that technology will actually bring ease to our lives, I'm here to tell you it won't. Okay? It won't. Technology will not save us from this cult and this actual culture of speed and acceleration. What I'd actually like to suggest to you is this, that technology is not the cure, technology is the problem. Okay? Technology is not the cure, technology is the problem. Let me explain by what I mean by that. And no, I'm not anti-tech. We're currently using tech to record all this and to send all this out. Obviously, I'm not against technology, but this is just the truth. When it comes to the time and this culture of speed and acceleration, that technology, follow with me, technology doesn't save us time. It just increases the pressure with what we feel we need to get done in any given amount of time, okay? Or to put it differently, technology doesn't save us time. It just creates pressure to get more done with the time that we have. This is why this culture of acceleration isn't going to go anywhere. And you know this if you've lived long enough. You know this technology doesn't save us any time. Let me just ask you a few simple questions if you've lived long enough, okay? Did the switch? Did the switch from letter writing to email save you any correspondence time? Or did it just increase what you were supposed to get done? It just increased what you're supposed to get done, right? Or did the switch from phone calls to texting all of a sudden save you all this time? Or now do you need to be more responsive to people and actually causes more of a burden? Or, let me ask you this question, when the internet speeded up and you got better internet, did you get more done? Or did you just feel like you needed to get more done? Right? That what technology does is to increase the pressure that we all feel. So we have a culture of scarcity and of speed. And then lastly, I believe we also have a culture of what I would like to call self-improvement or self-actualization, or better put, self-optimization. And that we live actually being pressured and being shaped by this God, ruler, power, force, whatever you wanna call it, of self-improvement and self-optimization. And the way I would define it is this. This is the idea that is currently everywhere within our culture, that you can and must become the very best version of yourself. this is the idea of self-improvement, self-optimization, that you can and you must become the very best version of yourself. This then shows up in all sorts of ways that we talk, like this idea that you can be really whoever you want to be. Right? that you can do anything that you set your mind to, that you just need to look inwardly and listen to your true self, and then you will succeed. That if you are your authentic self, you will find your path forward. Okay? And while on the surface, some of these ideas sound good, and there might even be some truth in you know, portions of them, what these ideas actually do is they leave us trapped within ourselves. That when we say, you just do you, or you just do your truth, or you live however you want to live and find your own path, What this actually does is place us under tremendous guilt and pressure and it actually makes many of us feel like we are failing. Because follow with me. If it is true that you can be whoever you want to be, if it is true that you just need to be true to you and your own truth and you will succeed, if all the answers are already within you, then follow with me. Then, if all those things are true and your life isn't as fulfilling and as amazing as you want, who is at fault? The answer is, You, that if you can be anything you want to be and you are not succeeding, then who's at fault? The answer is you. This is the problem with this kind of culture or this power of self-improvement and self-optimization, that we've bought into the lie that what we need to do is to succeed, is to be true to ourselves, but what we've actually done is to trap ourselves within ourselves. This is why, even though many people can't quite name it, they have this nagging feeling, follow with me to make this more personal and practical, they have this nagging feeling that they aren't living up to their potential, that they aren't sufficiently amazing, that they simply aren't good enough, that they're not a good enough mom, that they're not a good enough dad, that they're not a good enough friend, that they're not a good enough spouse. They look around and they just feel like they aren't living up to their own potential. That what the power or ruler of self-improvement teaches us tells us that people can be whatever they want. And then if you aren't, it actually feeds you with guilt that you aren't living up to your truest self. A really good example of how this idea plays out in our culture is actually with Beyonce. Now, with no disrespect to the queen that Beyonce is, okay, in her new album, she sings this line. She sings, nobody can judge me but me. I was born free. She sings it a number of times. This is the epitome of like self-actualization. That I have all the answers within me. I have all that I need within me. And for sure, that's like great if you're Beyonce. She can sing, nobody can judge me but me. She can sing that because she's at the top of everything already. She's already like beautiful and gorgeous. She's already a musical genius and like a millionaire. She is already killing it at every single level. But what happens if you aren't like Beyonce? And you're like a normal human being who's trying but feels like they're failing and the inner critic is really loud. And the problem isn't that people outside of you are judging you, the problem is is that you aren't living up even to your own expectations of what you can be. This is the power of self-optimization that teaches us, that teaches us that you simply aren't good enough as you are. And we've internalized this and it's brutal and it's damaging and it's oppressive. Andrew Root puts it this way, and while it's not as great as Beyonce lyrics, okay, what this really is, really is, is like theological language to explain our world. He says this, he says, we've escaped the hands of an angry God to live instead within our own selves. He says, living for ourselves, we find something shocking, something we were told we wouldn't find. We discover that our very own self condemns us. We still feel guilty, but he says this, but not because we're sinners needing to find a process of restoration and communion. Rather, he says, our guilt endures because we cannot be the selves we wish we could be. In a secular age, the world we're living in, sin is my inability to optimize myself, to not live up to your true potential, to not do all that you should. He says this, and this is a heavy guilt, not because it bears the weight of heaven, but because within the self, there are no sources to escape the self to find a grace from outside the self, to forgive and to free, to renew, to remake the self. He says to be guilty of the self by the self, to not be as special as I think I should be, is to be trapped within myself and we are caught in a vicious cycle. This is what the power of self-actualization is actually doing to us. It is making us feel like we are failing all the time, not living up to our potential because we simply aren't good enough. So when it comes to our world, Here's how I think our world is run. I've been trying today to really describe the water that we are swimming in, to try to give you a different kind of metaphor, to describe this kind of world that we all seem to agree with, but really is damaging and difficult. And I think there are three powers, three rulers, three systems, three, you know, um, principalities, to use different terms, that are actually driving our lives, that are influencing them, often in ways we don't even realize. And they are scarcity, they are speed, and they are self-improvement. That what our world does is to teach us constantly that we will never have enough. This is what we internalize, that we will never have enough, that's scarcity. Our world teaches us that we can't keep up enough, right? That's speed. You likely feel that. You're not doing enough as a mom, dad, as a friend, as an entrepreneur, or whatever it may be. There's more you should be doing. There's always more you should be doing. That is the power of acceleration, that we can't keep up enough. And that lastly, that you are not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not sufficiently amazing or special. You haven't quite reached out your potential, whatever it may be. That is the power of self improvement. And as I said, I know I'm spending a lot of time on this. I just think it really matters to actually describe the world that we are in. Because if we're going to understand the good news of the gospel, we actually need to understand the world that we are currently trapped in. Because what the gospel does is to provide freedom. What the gospel does is to provide life. What the gospel does is to provide a different kingdom to live in than the kingdoms of speed, scarcity, and self-improvement, right? But we are trapped in this. It's almost like it's the default setting of our lives. And we don't even realize it. And it's of influencing our kids, it's influencing our marriages, it's influencing our friendships, that right now so many people feel like they aren't good enough, they, they aren't doing enough, and that they don't have enough. And this is a massive problem. Because whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, can we just agree with this? That living according to the gods of our age, of speed, scarcity, and acceleration, and self-improvement, these gods are actually exhausting and draining. They do not give life, all they do is steal life. And so as I said, I know I'm spending a long time trying to describe the world we live in, but I think we never actually sit and contemplate the world we're a part of. I think these powers are like the thing behind the thing that drives so much of our world that we don't ever name. And now that I've named them, now I've named these powers of like scarcity, of speed and self-improvement, do you see them at all in your own life? Do you see them at all in the lives of your kids or your grandkids, of your friends, in your workplace, in your hockey, in your school, whatever it may be? Do you see how people are almost driven by these things without even realizing or recognizing it? I can tell you in my own life, I sometimes feel the pressure and the power of these things. I sometimes feel like I don't have enough. I need to grasp and grab more. I sometimes feel like I'm not doing enough, like I'm not, I don't know, successful enough or driving things forward enough. And I often feel like I'm just not good enough, not a good enough dad, spouse, whatever it may be. I feel like I'm just failing to reach my own potential. I feel this stuff. And my bet is is that many of you do as well, or at least you see it in the lives around you. But imagine with me, imagine with me if you didn't need to live kind of bowing to these powers of speed, of scarcity, and of self-improvement, bowing to these powers that tell you you're not good enough, you're not doing enough, and you certainly don't have enough. Imagine with me that you can live in a different world, You know what you might call that? You might actually call that good news, actually. That if there was a world where it was run by grace, where it was run by acceptance, where it was run by presence and trust and rest, you might actually believe that that is good news. Good news to follow a different king with a different rhythm and a different kingdom. That's really what the gospel is about. That what the gospel is, it's an invitation to follow Jesus as king. It's an invitation to follow his rhythms in his kingdoms. And it is a really beautiful proclamation. Because what Jesus invites us into is he invites us into a world where we can live according to trust, rest, acceptance, and grace. Where instead of us hearing all the time that you're not doing enough, you aren't enough, and you don't have enough, Jesus can come and meet us where he is at, and he provides rest and hope and life. That what the gospel really is, is an invitation for anybody who feels burnt out, tired, worn out, who just feels like the way of the world isn't working, that there is a different king and a different kingdom to follow. That today what I want us to get is just really two big things. Two big things, and I'm going to make this personal and share how it actually affects my life, okay? Two big things. First, that what the gospel is, is that Jesus is king. And the second thing is that we are trapped in our world actually following these powers of speed, scarcity, and self-improvement. And none of those gods actually give us any life. They just steal and drain our lives. So for today, what is my main point? My main point is really simple. My main point is that Jesus is king and we get to choose to live in his kingdom or the kingdom of this world. That's my main point today. That Jesus is king and we get to choose to live in his kingdom or the kingdom of this world. That we get to make that choice. Because the good news is, is that even though our world kind of sets the default, we don't have to continue to follow the patterns and the rhythms and the rulers of this world. We can actually follow someone else. We can choose to follow Jesus as king. We can actually place him in charge and let him teach us his rhythms of grace and his rhythms of acceptance and his rhythms of rest. And this I think is really good news. Because I don't know if you've tried actually you know, following all those powers of speed, scarcity, and self-improvement, but they don't help, they don't help. They just leave us feeling more hollow, more drained, and with less life. Jesus's kingdom is a completely different way to live. And what the gospel is all about is that you can change the kingdom that you are a part of. You don't have to pledge allegiance to this world, you can pledge allegiance to Christ, that you can follow a different pattern that actually leads to life. But then practically, what does it look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus as king? What does that look like to follow his rhythms in a world that really is run by scarcity, speed, and self-improvement? Well, I want to share with you what it looks like, at least in my life, where I try to follow him and not these gods and powers of the world around us. So I want to share with you how I'm trying to actually not follow the gods of scarcity, speed, and self-improvement, and instead to follow Jesus, who invites us to trust, who invites us to rest, and who invites us to presence. So I want to share with you three stories of what this at least looks like in my life to hopefully make it a little bit more practical for each of us. So first, what does it live look like to follow Jesus in a world that is run really by scarcity? Well, here's what Jesus has been teaching me in a world that is run by scarcity. What he's been teaching me is that I need to learn to trust in him and not what I have or don't have. I want to say that again, that what Jesus is teaching me is that I need to trust in him, not what I have or I don't have. And I know as soon as I say that, that that's like an uber pastor thing to say. It's like a super spiritual thing to say, but it's also a really true thing to say. At least that is what he has been teaching me, that I need to trust in him, not what I have or don't have. That I shouldn't be placing my trust in scarcity, but in his abundance. So I want to share with you a story of of where my trust in Jesus and my trust in scarcity was really actually tested, where it was really challenged. Uh, so I'm going to be really vulnerable and share with you um, a really difficult season and where I was really forced to place my trust in Christ, not the voice of uh, the God of scarcity. Now, as many of you know, over the past few years, it's been a lot of ups and downs. What you might have realized or what you might not have is that a number of people have chosen to leave Bethany over that period. And the easiest way to put it, I think, about why people have, have left, the easiest and simplest way to put it is that people who left, the majority of them, were choosing to place politics above Christ. That's the easiest reason to say. And when people were leaving, what would sometimes happen is most often they would leave without saying anything, or if they did, it would be like a brutal email. And it was in these spaces that the voice of scarcity, the god of scarcity, the ruler of scarcity, started to speak really subtly and really clearly to my soul. Where all of a sudden, I started to worry that if people are leaving, we might not have enough. And that what I need to do as a leader, I need to grasp control, I need to gain control, I need to stop this thing. That's why I started to think, because if somebody else is gaining, then we're losing, right? I started to feel like if I didn't do something, there might not be a Bethany or whatever it may be. Scarcity started to speak really loudly to me with fear and with worry and with manipulation that what I needed to do was to grasp and cling and gain control. I was into that space. I really started to consider some poor decisions, some poor ideas, some ways of trying to stop that, from ways of trying to grasp control. Because what scarcity does, this is just true, fear and scarcity make bad decisions look like almost necessary ones, right? So I started to think about some of the things I could do to stop that, just trying to grasp control, to gain control back. It was into that space that Jesus asked me a really clear question. And sometimes Jesus speaks to me really clearly. Sometimes I hear him, sometimes it struggled, but this time it was very, very clear. And what he asked me was just this. He asked me this, do you trust me, Andrew, even in this? Do you trust me, Andrew, even in this? Do you wanna know the honest, vulnerable answer? The vulnerable answer was sometimes I said to him, no, not really. No, not really. Because it's really easy to trust in God when things are going well. It's really difficult to trust in him when things aren't necessarily going well and you feel like you're losing, you feel like you're falling behind. And scarcity says, if you don't grab this, you're going to miss out and there's nothing left. Right? There's only so much to go around. So if you don't get this, if you don't kind of stop this, then there won't be anything for you. But Jesus just kept coming back to that question to me. Do you trust in me? Do you trust in me? And it got a little bit more pointed. He asked me at one point, do you trust in your control or my faithfulness? Right? Because what Jesus is teaching me in his kingdom is that there is a different way to live. And it's not with grasping and clinging and trying to manipulate and trying to control. It is with trust in him. It is with trust in him in his outcomes. It is actually in learning to surrender to him and to allow him to lead. Right? This is a completely different rhythm to lead and live in than our world. Our world teaches us we need to grasp and get anything because if we don't, it'll be gone. Jesus teaches us that his kingdom is about trust. It is about abundance. And it's about being simply faithful to him and letting him be faithful to me and faithful to you. So for me, what I learned in that season was really to trust in the voice of Jesus or the voice of scarcity. I wanna invite you to do the same thing. That scarcity speaks with fear. Scarcity speaks with not enough. Scarcity seeks like, you better get this or it's gone. Jesus invites us into a completely different posture. It's a posture of trust. It's a posture of surrender. It's a posture of belief in him and following and faithfulness. And it's one where we don't need to control all the outcomes. We actually trust that he is king and he is in charge. And that's what he taught me in that season, is that I need to just live that way and to leave all the rest up to him. Second thing then, what about kind of speed and acceleration? What is Jesus teaching me about how do I live in his kingdom in today's day and age with speed and acceleration? And what he has been taught uh, teaching me is actually the importance of resting over running and rushing. What Jesus has taught me is really the importance of resting over running and rushing. And when he taught me this most was actually in this past month where Jesus asked me to do something that I really struggle with. And I know as soon as I say this example, it is, sounds ridiculous. It is totally privileged. I get all of those things. But it's also the time when he showed me this the most that what Jesus asked me to do in August, which I have never done, was to take an extended vacation. And I've really struggled with this. Now, I know as soon as I say that, it sounds ridiculous, and it sounds privileged, and it is. Some of you are just desperate to have any vacation, and to have a long one doesn't seem really like a difficulty. It seems more like a blessing, right? But we do vulnerability here, so I want to share with you why that was a struggle for me, and it honestly was. Because what I was feeling, this sounds so so silly, but I was feeling... What I was feeling is that if I took an extended vacation, here's the worry kind of behind things. As somebody who's like a hard Enneagram 3, as somebody who's driven by achievement, as somebody who's driven by people actually um, approval and all those things, I thought if I took some time off, what might end up happening is we might end up falling behind. That's what I thought. That if I wasn't here that we would fall behind that we would miss opportunities that we wouldn't be moving forward as much and I know it sounds so ridiculous to say out loud but that is what I was feeling and you want to know what voice that was that was the god or power of speed and acceleration that you need to do more 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 you can't hit pause you can't rest you can't take a step back because if you do if you do you might fall behind that's what I was feeling really really strongly but in August as you know I actually took an extended vacation because Krista was at home. She was able to be off of school, and we went away together. And you want to know what else is really weird for me during that time that I did, when I did, is I didn't read one theology book at all. I didn't read one theology book, which is Like, shocking, I know, because normally when I go away, normally when I go away on vacation, what I end up doing is I read like usually a book a day. I know that's kind of crazy, but that's what I do. Usually a book a day of theology, of leadership, of preaching, of business, of whatever. And essentially what ends up happening on my vacations is I'm essentially using my vacations to prep for when I get back to work. That's what ends up happening. But this time I read no theology books, nothing. All I read was terrible fantasy books. Terrible fantasy books about dragons, a lot of Dragonlance novels that I picked up at a used bookstore in Perry Sound. Like, this is what I did. And what Jesus taught me in this season is that there is such a value in his kingdom of actual resting not just rushing and grasping or to put it differently can I just put it this way frantic grasping never leads to living like frantic living never leads to true life right so what Jesus taught me is that in his kingdom there is a different rhythm not go 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 more 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 that it's important to pause when you can to rest when you can to renew when you can because his kingdom runs at a different pace and it's one that allows us to experience life and doesn't steal life from us But then thirdly, thirdly, what about this idea of self-improvement or self-optimization? How has Jesus been teaching me to live in his kingdom? What he's been teaching me is the importance of presence over perfection. What he's been teaching me is the importance of presence over perfection. Because truthfully, I I struggle a lot with the need to kind of continually be improving, getting better and all of that. I feel that, that need within me, it's pretty strong. And in the past um, couple of months, especially when Krista was on placement, I felt kind of the need to be like perfect in everything, right? To be like an amazing dad with like no anger, only patience, to be leaving the church well, to be doing all of this effortlessly, to not need anybody, right? I I feel that so often deep within me, that if somebody asks me if I need help with something, my most gut reaction is to say no, because if I need help, that means I'm not self-sufficient. And so I have this yeah, it's a problem. I have a problem where I need to continue to improve and to grow. That's really that idea of self-improvement, self-optimization, that you should be self-sufficient on your own. This is the lie of our culture. And so one day, Jesus taught me a really strong lesson about why that isn't helpful and how to live differently in his kingdom. One day, I was working or doing the dishes or whatever, and Eden came up to me. This was when Krista was on placement. And Eden came up to me, and she's crying, and she's just really having a really bad day. She's like, Dad, I'm just missing Mom. I'm just missing it. It's just not going good. It's a bad day, Dad. So I stopped whatever I was doing, you know. Um, And on this particular day, I wasn't feeling like a particularly good dad either. And I gave her a long hug, and we just kind of sat there for a moment. And then uh, after a while, she smiled and got up, and she said, thanks, Dad, that's all I needed. And I noticed that she had a piece of paper in her hand, and she went and put it back in an envelope. And I asked her, honey, like, what's that piece of paper? And our little uh, seven-year-old is quite smart. What she had done was create a bad-day envelope a bad day envelope, so that when she's feeling down, she would pick one thing from the bad day envelope that would help her to make her feel better. And the one that she picked was a hug from dad. So she came and gave me that hug, got that hug, and felt better. And it was at that moment, it was at that moment that Jesus really reminded me that what Eden needs isn't a perfect dad, that what Eden needs is simply a dad who is present and there sometimes for her, like deeply there, right? That what she needs is not perfection and improvement and growth. What she needs sometimes is a hug. That what Jesus taught me is that in his kingdom, what matters more over perfection is presence and acceptance and grace and being together. That's what Jesus reminded me of in that moment. And that's how his kingdom actually runs. His kingdom runs according to presence and grace and acceptance, not this idea of constant self-improvement that if you don't do it, you are failing. That's not how Christ works. He invites us into a different rhythm. And so today... So today, this is what it looks like in my own life, to seek to live according to Christ as king, not these gods of scarcity, self-improvement, and speed. That instead, what I seek to live with, I seek to live with as best I can, with trust. With trust. Trust in Jesus. Trust in who He is. Trust in Jesus the King. Then also with rest, because Jesus is King and He is in charge, and His kingdom is a kingdom of abundance. And then lastly, with presence. Not just trying to be perfect, but with presence. Being available to those around me and being available to Him. This is what Jesus has been teaching me about how to follow Him. So practically, what does this mean for us all here today? Well, today what I want to invite you is really one main point and one action. But today my main point is just this, that Jesus is king and we can choose to live in his kingdom or this world. And then practically what does that look like? It looks like living with trust, rest, and presence. Okay? It looks like living with trust, rest, and presence. Our world tells us that we are never enough, right? That we are never enough. Jesus invites us into his presence. Our world tells us that there isn't enough. We don't have enough. Jesus tells us to trust in him. And our world tells us that we aren't doing enough. Jesus invites us to rest in him. The question I want to invite you into my challenge here for today is just this, is what kingdom or king do you actually want to live under? What kingdom or king do you actually want to live under? Do you want to live under Christ and his kingdom of trust, presence, and grace? How his rhythms are so different than our world's? Or do you want to live under the default setting of our world, right, where you don't have enough, you aren't good enough, and you certainly aren't doing enough, right? That's what our world teaches us all the time. And I truly believe that the way our world works, it is actually damaging and harming so many of us. So what I want to invite you into today is to make a choice. To make a choice about which kingdom you are following. Because you can pledge allegiance to King Jesus. You can actually choose to follow him. You can choose to place your trust in him. And we're going to dive deeply into what all of this looks like over the next few weeks together. But today, my challenge is really simple to start this series. It's to choose which kingdom you live in. Because those choices have real-life consequences, right? Those choices have real-life realities. Choose which kingdom you want to live in. Because as Jesus himself puts it, he puts it this way. Anybody who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat I am. Follow me, and I'll show you how. This is our choice, to choose to let him be in charge, to choose to let him be king, to choose to let him lead. And so I want to invite you to make that choice today. Whose kingdom are you following? Because that choice is a choice that will change our lives, change the trajectory, and change how we experience everything around us. So, with that, would you join with me in prayer here today? God, I pray. I pray for each and every one of us. I pray would we choose to actually follow you? Would we pledge allegiance to you? Would we actually follow you as King and as Lord? I pray, God, in this confusing, difficult world that continues to tell us that we don't have enough, that we aren't doing enough, and that we certainly aren't good enough, that we would hear your voice or the voice of scarcity, speed, and self-improvement, would we know, Lord, that there is a different way to live? And I pray over the next few weeks, would you help us to actually find that way to live? Would we learn to follow you? Would we learn your rhythms of grace, of mercy, of rest and presence, and most of all, of trust in you? I pray as we move into this next week, God, I pray, will we actually follow you as King? And will we find life as we follow you? Will we know your peace, your mercy, and all that you have for us? And I pray this all in the wonderful name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. So I want to invite you. I want to invite you to join with us back here next week as we explore what does it mean then to truly follow Jesus as king. And if today, if today you're making that choice to follow Jesus as king for the very first time, I want to invite you to reach out to us online so that we can follow up, so we can celebrate, and so that we can help you take your next steps. And then as always, grace and peace. Bye-bye.